The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Vintage Aviation News is pleased to support Wings Over Britain and Wings Over New Zealand. And we'll be checking in with reports as Dave's tour progresses. Vintage Aviation News is an organization founded by a group of passionate vintage aviation enthusiasts who love to share the history and technology aviation museums preserve for the public. It's our intention to play a role in safeguarding the heritage of these beautiful machines by providing increased awareness and education through the use of internet-based digital media. Vintage Aviation News is an online news resource dedicated to warbirds, aviation museums, vintage aviation, and aviation heritage, and the many enthusiasts who wish to know more about them. The goal of this site is to provide fresh, daily news content for a large community of aviation fans who visit our page regularly. Vintage Aviation News Online can be found on your usual social media channels and at VintageAviationNews.com. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Uh, today, my guest is Jason Easthope, universally known as Easty. Hey, Jason. Yeah, g'day, Dave, and uh, g'day to who, all your listeners as well. Now, um, you're a group captain in the Royal Australian Air Force at the moment, um, but you started off way back uh, in New Zealand. You're a Kiwi and uh, started off with the, in the Royal New Zealand Air Force. Can I take you right back to the beginning um, where you grew up and uh, how you, you sort of got into aviation, how, how it became part of your life? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's let's go back to the beginning and start from there. So, whereabouts were you born? So, uh, born and bred in New Zealand. In New Zealand, yeah. um, born in Rotorua, and, okay. and pretty much grew up in Rotorua uh, right throughout my schooling years. Um, I went to high school at uh, Rotorua Boys High and then, you know, kind of during my schooling years, I actually lived in Samoa for a couple of years because my dad got a contract with Samoa Forest Products. Okay. So for a couple of years during my schooling years, <laughs> I spent two years over in Samoa and didn't really go to school at all. Um, but <laughs> Rotorua is, Rotorua is uh, or Rota Vegas is where I grew up. Yep. Yep. Oh, cool. So did you see much in the way of aviation there? Did it sort of permeate your life as a youngster? Not when I was really young, um, although so the first time I seriously got a bit of a taste of aviation was actually during that couple of years in Samoa when I was eight, nine, ten years old, yeah. because we were on one of the islands there and the only or the main way to get to the mainland was uh, via a plane. Okay. And, and that was a Norman Islander. And oh, right. on one of those trips, I was able to sit up the front and that really scratched that aviation itch. Yeah. Um, but the first time I really thought, wow, that, that's what I want to do from an aviation perspective was at an air show in New Zealand where yeah. a couple of strike masters um, were there on the ground and did a show. And then a couple of Skyhawks came through and over the crowd uh, during the air show. And that's, um, that's where I really got hooked. I would have been around 14 years old. Okay. So do you remember where and what year that would have been? So that, that was at the Rotorua Airport. Yep. And that would have been in late 2014 or early 2015. Um, no, that can't be right. Sorry. Yeah, yeah exactly right. That would have been, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> late 84, early 85. Right, right. Um, I was still at school, 14 years old, and there was an air show there. Um, and... I was actually on the ground standing at the fence line behind a strike master that stood uh, that started up in yep. front of the crowd. Yep. And you know where you get that, that rumble that kind of rumbles through your chest as a jet starts up. Yeah. And you get that waft of kind of jet fuel smell and then the heat that kind of wafts over you. Yeah, yeah. And then you just you just stand there right at, you know in that environment where there's not a lot of oxygen right because the jet's kind of used it all up with the <laughs> exhaust fumes. Yeah. And just thinking man this is really cool. And then um, during the show, obviously, the Strike Masters got airborne and did a bit of a display. But then um, during the display, two Skyhawks came down out of nowhere, fast and low past the crowd. And that's where, you know, that sense of awe really, really got me hooked as a young'un. Wow, that's awesome. And so from then on, you were sort of uh, reading up and looking towards joining the Air Force? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you what, that moment... Um, around that age was probably the first time that school had a meaning now because right. you needed to achieve a certain level at school in order to join the Air Force and be a pilot. Yeah. And after that air show, clearly I wanted to be a pilot. So now school for me had a real purpose. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, so tell me about the, the process of joining up then. Um, so at, at that time, it was Form 6, which was kind of your second to last year of school. Yeah. Um, 
I basically got a haircut, got a blazer, <laughs> went down to the Air Force recruiting office and kind of, you know, said I want to be a pilot. And that, you know, the ball started rolling from there. Yep. Normal applications, a few interviews. And then very early in my last year of school, I went in for dedicated pilot testing, which tended to be, you know, a bit of general knowledge, but a lot of math and science. Yep. At a, you know, at a level probably similar to your last year of school. So I sat down on those exams. I hadn't really prepared for them because I didn't know a lot about the process, but clearly the exams were, you know, pitched at a mid-level, but the volume of it was enormous. So there was no real way to finish the exam in the time available. And it's only in hindsight that I realized that actually that was done on purpose to, you know, to work out how you handled pressure, knowing that actually you're probably not going to finish. Uh, the exam in time and they gauge you know a lot of about how your accuracy declines when you're under pressure like that but anyway did those initial exams early in my last year of school um passed those and now midway through my last year of school i went to to rapa base at that time where we did a four or five day air force selection camp for one of a better term okay so that's where they would assess your officer qualities your maturity clearly your knowledge and skill and a little bit of leadership and all those types of things quite a foreign environment to me um at that level i had done um air force cadets earlier so i was exposed to some of this but um i was still pretty young at the time so it was 1988 yep Uh, i was still 17 and i managed to you know get through all of those tests through to a final final interview um, where they pretty much said to me at the time was, hey, you're exactly what we're looking for, but you need to go away for a few years and kind of grow up. Yeah. Um, of which I said, no, I, you know, I am keen to get straight into this as soon as possible. So the way that that played out was I got a, a phone call from the Air Force recruiting office around about the... September, October time of my last year of school, where they said, you know, congratulations, uh, you you are going to receive a letter of offer to join the New Zealand Air Force as a pilot. However, you have to finish your last year of school, <laughs> um, <laughs> which was quite difficult to remain focused after that particular phone call. Yeah, um, yeah. But that was awesome, like 17 years old in my last year of school, and I've been told that I've got a spot to join the New Zealand Air Force as a pilot awesome day i'll never forget it oh absolutely it, you know it's really funny because right at that exact same time i was being recruited to join and uh i got a letter in the august saying you've got the job you'll be coming in in the september so i went straight to school it was still the holidays i went straight to school signed out and said i'm bugger off i'm, I'm not coming <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and i got another letter uh, about a week later saying oh sorry your your course has been deferred till january <laughs> oh what a classic yeah i got uh i got explicit direction that i was to finish my last year of school okay well i never did (laughs) (laughs) i had a i had a free summer and then joined the air force (laughs) yeah i don't know i don't know who got that right yours yours sounded a lot easier than my last few months of school (laughs) because i had to sit all the exams right for at that time university entrance and you know your form seven exams yep yeah Okay. Uh, and then, obviously, you um, would have gone down to Wigram to start off with your training, was it? Yeah, I sure did. So started 
down at Wigram in the January following my last year of school. Um, I'd had my 18th birthday here in that time because I was kind of born near the end of the year and then straight down to Wigram to join or start the officer training component of, you know, joining the Air Force. So yeah. it was all about, you know, as it was known back then, your knife and fork course kind of thing, but yeah. it was all officer training uh, for the first three and a half months before I could get to pilot training. Right. And so you you would have had other types of officers in there with you. They weren't all pilots. It would have been navigators and yep, absolutely. Yep. So there were pretty much all of those trades covered, right? Um, pilots, navs, logistics, administration, engineering officers. You know, quite a widespread, right. which also meant there was a widespread of age and experience. Um, so I was one of the youngest there. I just turned eighteen. There were two of us at that age, both pilots, yep. um, but there were. There were people in their late twenties, you know, on their second and third careers by then. Right. So, right. you know, quite quite a range uh, of age and experience on officer yeah. training. Well, did you find those people that had come up through the ranks and they, they were now trained as officers to be helpful to you younger guys that didn't know anything about it? Oh, absolutely. So, if they were commissioning from the ranks where they'd already been in defence, um, you know, they were really calm heads that you could turn to. Yeah. When you're kind of a young 18-year-old not knowing what's going on, you know, spiralling into a vortex of, you know, not knowing what to do next. And, you know, you can just talk to these old hats where they'd kind of, you know, put it back into perspective for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, moving on to the actual pilot training, you would have gone on to um, pilot training squadron with the CD4s? Yeah, absolutely. So CT4B, uh, as it was then. Yeah. Um, out of Wigram, uh, pilot training school, uh, as you say. Um, standard size course with um, a couple of Singaporean officers on the course as well as part of a one-way exchange. Yep. Um, and, yeah, in April of uh, 1989, I started number 189 pilots course. Okay. Again, another day I'll never forget. Yeah, yeah, I bet. So uh, how long was it before you actually got into an aircraft? Was it, I suppose there's a lot of ground school before you even get into it. Like it happened pretty quick, actually. Um, there was about three weeks of okay. ground, dedicated ground school yep. um, covering, you know, content specific to flying, but not necessarily just the airplane. So a lot of aerodynamics, you know, um, meteorology, learning about the weather, uh, a lot of pilots speak to do with no TAMs, you know, notice to airmen and flight planning and blah, blah, blah. Yep. With a sprinkling of the specific aircraft, you know, towards the end of that academics. Now, the academics just never stop, right? They go throughout the entire course. But you kind of get a fire hose worth of academics for about three weeks. And then you actually start getting into the airplane, learning the checks, start it up, taxi around, and then, you know, get into the general flying pretty quickly. Okay. And at that stage, were you completely focused on uh, uh, becoming a jet pilot? Was that going to be your the stream that you were going to aim for? Yeah, so it was. So yes, I, you know, I had my sights set on being a fighter pilot, but I I kept that pretty quiet at the beginning because I was pretty young, naive, yeah. immature, relatively speaking, and I didn't want to start throwing out the fact that I, you know, I wanted to be a fighter pilot and then screw it up and not make it. Yeah. But um. That was always a focus at the back of my mind, but it was clear to me actually that the training outcome requirements, you know, the bar was really, really high. 
and achieving that was clearly going to be difficult. So your focus point became almost day-to-day, right, just getting through the next event. Okay. Uh, Who was the instructor that you were assigned? Actually got uh, several instructors, but the the one that I started with uh, was McBill Williams. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, you probably remember him. So he was uh, very senior and experienced amongst the instructor cohort. Yep. and which was good for me, right? Because I was I was young and dumb uh, there at the, at the time. <laughs> so I, I learned, you know, I learned a lot from him uh, in those, you know, in those very early flights leading up to solo. Right, right. So take me through the your um your first flight with McBill and also uh, your first solo. Take me through those stories. Yeah, so that all happened pretty quick too, because it's like like ten flights or something like that, which happened over the period of about two weeks. So it was a real hiss and a roar, yeah. especially for someone who hadn't done any flying. Yeah. Um, and you know th- there was a lot to learn. So um, I would make all the standard student mistakes. Uh, learn a lot from McBill. Clearly, you get overloaded uh, there in the beginning. So the first thing that goes out the window is your ability to hear and understand instructions. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, he he was a really good instructor. In the middle of that, I actually flew with um, just trying to think of his name. Uh, one of one of the pretty new instructors. I did two flights with him right in the middle, and I kept screwing up my circuits. And I remember at one point, you know, having been high on glide slope three times in a row, and having to go around and not being able to land. And he pulled the uh, canopy breaker out of its mount, which is you know that tiny little pick or axe kind of looking thing so you can smash your way out of an air trainer canopy if you have a yep. crash yep. pokes it into my leg you know <laughs> stabs me in the in the right in the right thigh you know just so i could feel it going you know if you screw this next one up i'm gonna stab you with a canopy breaker which <laughs> which was a bit of a laugh i'll tell you what it actually worked for me other than the fact that i thought oh yeah that, that's pretty interesting but as i was coming around base onto finals getting high again and clearly i was behind the airplane not really comprehending the fact that it was high and I just feel a bit of pressure into my leg as the, you know, as he pushes down, it's like, oh, well, clearly I'm high then. So down I come, the pressure would be released. It's like, oh, well, obviously I learn, you know, with a, with that type of instructional technique, but um, I'll, I'll always kind of remember that halfway through, you know, my journey to solo, but the actual solo flight, I remember well, because I was, I was with McBill, you know, did about three or four circuits out to the area, do some aerobatics, come back, do some more circuits, you don't really know when you're going to go solo because it's somewhere near, you know, GF10, 11, 12, depending on how you're going. But um, McBill just said, right, well, we're done, taxi back. And as we're taxiing back, he just said, stop here, you know, go back to idle, pop the canopy. He soloed his seat, left the engine running, and he goes, right, away you go. I'll be in the tower if you need me. <laughs> so, you know, off you go uh, in the CT4 taxi out lineup. And I mean, I was... I was so shit scared at the time. I didn't have a lot of time to sit and reflect and ponder the fact that I was sitting in an airplane on my own. Yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah, wow. And it all went well. Yeah, it went well. Three takeoffs and landings, and I walked away from all of them. So good to go. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, cool. Um, I guess there's a fair bit more training once you've gone solo on on the CD fours. Um, were there any sort of highlights or or lowlights that you remember from? The rest of the CD4 phase? Yeah, the, I mean, I, I really loved getting into the aerobatics and the navigation phase where you, yeah. you know, head off away from home, kind of navigate through the mountains. 
um, and doing aerobatics as well. And kind of as I progressed through the CT4 air trainer phase, I was just kind of learning at about the right rate, you know, just, you know, not falling behind, not getting ahead, just kind of just keeping up there with respect to study. But somewhere, you know, near the end of the air trainer phase before going to the jet phase, when we were starting to get into a bit more aggressive manoeuvring, you know, doing the navigation phase and you'd, you'd fly with someone who would come from fighters and they'd put a bit of an edge on it, like, hey, get to your target on time. You know, we're going to attack that bridge. Yeah. Something really clicked where, you know, it didn't take so much brain space for me just to fly the airplane. I could then, my situational awareness started to expand out. I could think a lot further ahead of the airplane okay. and it just really started to click. I don't know what it was. Yeah. Um, it might have just been the amount of time I'd had in the airplane. Um you know, also a bit of the fact that I was able to structure my preparation and study, but I actually started to really enjoy the flying, but I could I could do it with free brain space. And yeah. that made an enormous difference then to now, you know, the quality of my flying. And I started to I started to, you know, stand out a bit now amongst the course. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. Uh so when you come to the end of your course, um, it, it was standard for all of you on the on the pilot's course to pass to go on to the Strike Master at that stage, wasn't it? Yeah, so at that stage, back then, the Wings course had like a basic phase, which was the Air Trainer, the CT4, and an advanced phase, which was the Strike Master. Yeah. But that was all part of the Wings course. So oh, you actually had to pass the advanced phase, which was basic jet flying in the Strike Master, yeah. in order to get your wings. Um, so regardless of what platform you ended up going to after you graduated, everybody flew the Strike Master. Right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, tell me about getting onto that phase, where, that part of it, when you went up to Ahakiu. Oh, yeah, it was awesome. Uh, it was awesome just because it was a jet for a start. Yeah. But it was also awesome because we are at Ahakiu and there was a fighter squad in there, you know, 75 squad. So there was a lot going on. Yeah. Um, and it just had a real a real buzz and vibe to the place that was less focused on just students and officer training like like down at Wigram. Yeah. Yep. Um so that that was absolutely fabulous. And plus we'd got through the basic phase of CD4s and there a lot of people had been cut away at that stage as well. So you you really had a sense of achievement and also you could see the light at the end of the tunnel with respect to graduation. Yep. So I loved it. Um the and a lot of the instructors at that stage, a lot of them had come from fighters, Skyhawks, okay. because um, 75 Squadron was right there. It was the jet phase. So there were, you know, ratio perspective, there were more fighter instructors there at the time than from all of the other trades. Um, so there were a lot of, you know, people that mentored me in order to achieve what was then known, which was I wanted to go to. I want to go to Skyhawks clearly on graduation. Right. Um, and I and I kept up my high standards as well, having come out of the CD4 phase. I very quickly mastered uh, the Strike Master. That's relatively speaking for a student who knows nothing clearly. But, um, you know, I really got on top of the airplane quite quickly such that by the end of the Wings course, which was on the Strike Master, I'd achieved some pretty high standards. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Was it much of a step up from the air trainer to the to the Strike Master jet? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know the the CT four really did not feel more like a trainer than it did at the moment that I started up a jet and took off in a jet. <laughs> <laughs> and you know you 
you hear people talk about, you know, hanging on to the, the stabs or the back of the jet with your fingertips as it takes off without you. Yes. You know, that's a that's in reference to, you know, you mentally keeping up with it. Yeah. And, you know, nothing was truer for me as well as this airplane goes blasting off into the blue as I'm trying to keep up with it. Um, and just basic things like getting the gear up, getting the flaps up, not breaking altitude, talking on the radio was like, oh my God, this is all happening really quick. I laugh about it now because it was a strike master, which is relatively slow, um, <laughs> yeah. but it's all relative, right? To where you are in your training phase. So I certainly remember hanging on to the back of the airplane as it took off without me, um, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but very quickly got on top of it. Okay. Uh, so were you doing things like, I, I guess you had to, then learn as part of the wings course you're learning aerobatics and formation all that kind of thing um yep but- so all the basics like uh general flying circuits instrument flying night flying formation flying yep. and aerobatics yep all of those foundational skills where it doesn't really matter what airplane you're in you just need to get that foundation sorted they were all in the wings course and this phase was done on the strike master so actually quite a lot of fun Okay. And, and so at that stage, you didn't touch any weapons or, or did any sort of uh, war type stuff. It was all just flying training stuff. It was, although um, the, the fighter pilots that were instructors at number 14 squadron when I was there clearly knew that I wanted to be a fighter pilot. So if we were out doing arrows, they'd be talking about, you know, getting into the six o'clock and shooting someone down and if we were doing just a basic navigation phase, they'd be talking about actually, you know, sneaking around behind a hill and bombing a bridge. And oh, then, right. you know, they'd just add that context to the mission, which gave it really good meaning and purpose. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> cool. So um, having an encouragement like that, that must have been a real boost for you to go on to the, to the next phase, which is when you obviously got selected for jet pilot for, for fast jets. Um, yep. So, I mean, there are like grad, graduating with your wings is is a moment, a very special moment, actually, that you'll never forget. And it's a brevet that I wear with pride after all these years. But there's there's two things that I distinctly remember at my graduation, standing there on the parade. Yeah. Uh, one of them was uh, I got the trophy for the, the best flying on the course, uh, which was I was pretty chuffed with. And the second one was I was selected to go to fighters. Um, to fast jets so absolutely fabulous um you know pretty much achieving what was a boyhood dream that started you know at age 14 back in you know 1984 yeah fantastic so at this stage it must be what uh 1990 was it or 89 yep no 1990 so i graduated uh on the 4th of may 1990 okay um and got selected to go to fighters, so straight back to number 14 squadron, flying yeah. the same airplane, but very different type of training. Okay. Well, t- take me through the, the the new roles that you're learning then. Yeah, great. So now we were learning what is effectively fast jet and, you know, fighter pilot skills with respect to manoeuvring the aircraft at the very edge of its envelope, um, learning basic fighting skills, as in fighting another airplane. Yep. Um, including more than just one-on-one. Um, it included ground attack and evasion, and evasion either from an air threat or from a ground threat, and then clearly having a very mission-focused outcome, which might be, you know, attacking a target or, you know, protecting other assets that are trying to get to a target. So 
such a different focus on the training because everything up until then had been about flying the airplane really, really well. Yeah. Now it was about using the airplane as a weapon system and then learning the skills in order to achieve um, the mission objectives. Right, right, right. What part of that do you think was your favorite uh, new skill to learn? I would say low, very low flying yep. was quite exhilarating, um, but that was second place to dogfighting where okay. you would be head-to-head -head with another airplane and then it was pretty much up to your knowledge and skill in order to beat another aircraft or someone who have exactly the same tools at their disposal. Right, okay. At that stage, were the Strike Masters restricted in the in the movement with their um, wing issues, or did that come a little later? That had kind of come and gone. So we had a couple of airplanes that were restricted, yep. um, you know, as early airplanes that were part of the, what are we going to do with the Strike Master? You know, re-wing it or kind of fix it, patch it up. Um, but they were kind of allocated to the advanced phase of the wings course. For those on OPCON or operational flying training, we were using the airplanes that did not have any restrictions. Okay, because some of them got re-winged, didn't they? Earlier yeah, on? that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, cool. And at that stage too, the it was known that the um, the Mackie was going to be replacing them. So I guess, uh, you know, you probably didn't mind flying the pants off them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it provided a really awesome opportunity opportunity and time for me as well because um i was at number 14 squadron for about 18 months doing my you know basically fighter pilot foundation training yep. and then um the next skyhawk course that had come up there was uh one spot left on it between the two of us that were on the timeline okay. and they basically said whoever goes second i.e on the next course they will stay at 14 squadron and fly their air, the new air mackie for about six months before they go. So I immediately put my hand up <laughs> um, cool. to say, oh, I don't mind delaying going to the Skyhawk by six months if it means I get to fly this brand new jet. Right, right, right. Okay. And um, give me a bit of a comparison between the, the two types uh, doing the same work in, in the two types. Oh, yeah, absolutely chalk and cheese. So just from looking in the cockpit, right? So mm -hmm. it was like, opening the door of a, you know, an XY Falcon looking at the dash compared to looking at a Tesla. You know, it was <laughs> so different that it would blow your mind. Um, first of all, it had digital screens for its displays. It had a head-up display. Yeah. Um, so it looked, it just looked new and modern. And obviously it's, this is relative to the Strike Master. Yeah. But it even had the plastic wrapping on stuff and smelt like a brand new car. Like it was absolutely brand new. Um, straight out of the factory, had been test flown by the you know the factory test pilot, and then delivered to New Zealand, and we just started flying them. So some of the airplanes had absolutely no hours on them. Um, so that was that was an amazing experience to hop in an airplane um, so new. And from a performance perspective, you know it was several steps up above the Strike Master. First of all, it was tandem seating, so you felt like you were on your own in a fighter compared to the side by side. Yep. It had had more power, it was sleeker, it was quicker, it pulled more G, and it had a lot of avionics, um, you know, that was setting you up to go to the Skyhawk. So 
it was a fabulous time um, to be at 14 Squadron because of that. And also, because the aeroplane was so new, the, the chief at the time said, you know, uh, to 14 Squadron, we want to we want you to put on a bit of a display, you know, put together a little formation aerobatic display and be ready to do that, um, you know, at the next opportunity. Yep. And because there weren't many people flying it, um, there were effectively three instructors and myself. So they put together a four-ship uh, and one of the display pilots in the aerobatic display team was me, pilot officer Eastoke with kind of, you know, five <laughs> minutes on the aeroplane. That was just awesome. That's cool. That's I didn't realise that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And it would have been the perfect lead-in for you then going on to the um, the Skyhawk, which had only recently been upgraded with all the the whizzy do stuff in the cockpit. So, um, yeah, it's it's you, you made the right move, I reckon. Oh yeah, I loved it, and uh, it also meant that I just had more experience as well, and extra you know tools to my my bag of tricks with respect to you know experience, being able to handle pressure making decisions leading i just you know had a bit more under my belt once i got to the skyhawk yeah oh awesome um so tell me about the actual move to 75 squadron then was it was it yeah. 75 or was it two that you went to actually? yeah two squadron at two that squadron. stage so two yep. squadron had the skyhawk conversion flight on it yep. and at that time two squadron had moved from a hark here across to Nara in australia um, because the squadron was doing so much um, Australian Defence Force support, uh, whether it was against the Navy or the Australian Army or Australia or the RAF, that they basically decided to base the squadron over an hour. So it was already over there uh, when I got posted to Number 2 Squadron. So I packed up from a Ahakia and moved across to Australia to join Number 2 Squadron to do the Skyhawk operational conversion. Right, right. Um, so that, that was a move overseas, which was neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone I know who went to Nara said it was one of the best things they ever did. It, it was yeah, it was fabulous. Because, I mean, you're on a really busy base as well, um, although primarily a rotary wing, but still very, very busy. Yeah. But also lots of opportunities once you got through the Skyhawk conversion to do, to be doing ADF support, which was attacking Australian Navy warships, you know, Army ground targets, fighting the Hornet. There was just so much going on. It was really informative and quite quite good experience right 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 okay so um tell me about that stuff you're doing with the royal australian navy ships when you're coming in at almost zero feet how did that feel yeah that was neat so um the operational low flying limit at that stage was 50 feet mm -hmm. um and if you think the airplane is nearly 50 feet long obviously it's not very high mm. um so we did a lot of flying very close to the ground uh, or very close to the water because at that time, based on uh, naval sensors, naval weaponry and the weapons that we had, that, that was the tactic that got you in close enough in order to employ weapons without getting shot down. And of course, you know, the Kiwis were renowned for flying very low, yeah. <laughs> you know, certainly relative to um, the Royal Australian Air Force at that time. Yeah. Um, so we would rage around, you know, four of us you know split by the four points of the compass coordinating against an australian navy ship running in very very low and attacking it and the australian navy were you know they were just blown away with a what we could do but also the type of training that we were providing them it was you know the best that they could get anywhere in the world right 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 
Well, that's really cool. There's some amazing footage out there of uh, the Skyhawks from now operating with the uh, with the Australian Navy. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, all the years later, so I was I was over in Nowra back in the early days, you know, kind of early 90s. And I still run into people now, you know, 30 years later who talk yeah. about Skyhawks, you know, racing down below the bridge of, a, of an Australian warship. <laughs> so cool. <clears throat> um, did you get to do a little bit of um, showing the flag for New Zealand at that stage, uh, going to round to air shows or stuff like that? Um, with the sky yeah, so we so we did quite a few fly pass and air shows, um, yep. particularly over Canberra, um, yep. you know, for whatever celebrations might have been going on at the time. Anzac Day is a classic one. Yeah, um, we would support air shows as well, okay. um, and we would deploy as well either over to Perth or up to Williamtown as the two primary places. Then a little bit of Tyndall as well, in order to support uh, the ADF, primarily the RAF. Um, doing, you know, major exercises. And some of those exercises, number 75 squadron, would actually deploy from New Zealand to join the exercise. And us already in Australia with two squadron would also join the activity. So we had some we had some really big exercises going on during that time. Right, okay, cool. Uh, how, how long was the actual phase to learn to fly the Skyhawk on, on that part of the training? It was, it was very short. So the course was five months long. Okay. And then you stay with the squadron and move from training flight to the operations flight yep. where you just fly your backside off doing ADF support. Um, okay. So I was there a total of 12 months yep. and flew about 330 hours on the Skyhawk in that one year, which is quite a lot right. uh, for a single seat fighter. Yeah, yeah, that's holy moly. God, that's probably more than the top dresser would do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were, just, we were just in the cockpit you know, all day, every day, two or three flights a day, doing ADF support, raging around at low level. Like you learn a lot um, yeah. having come straight off the opcom. Well, so at that stage, you're still early and young in your career and yet you're, you're so experienced. It's incredible. Yeah, it's a relative term um, being so experienced. I'd certainly been exposed to a lot. You know, all of it really as a wingman under mentorship with very, very experienced pilots. Yeah. But in those early years, you know, from starting your foundation training on the Strike Master, the experience I had with the Air Mackey, and then doing Skyhawk operational conversion plus joining the operations flight, pretty much the everything that I'd kind of been exposed to in a very short time there, which got through to the end of the uh, Skyhawk conversion and a bit of time in Nara. So I guess the next next stage of it would have been back to seventy five squadron, was it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, yep. Posted back to New Zealand, number 75 squadron, as a brand new bog rat. So uh, I was pretty much off my L's, but on my P's. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, at the, at, you know, New Zealand's uh, frontline squadron. So um, that was fabulous because it pretty much meant, you know, after all of those years of training, starting at Wigram, um, you were now at the squadron doing the job. So if something happened, uh, you were in the right place to go and get it done. Yeah, yeah. So what was the date that you got back there? That was in 1993, in the okay. middle in the middle of the year. Okay. That's yeah. ju just before I got posted to a haku. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, so tell me about the differences between 75 Squadron and 2 Squadron. Was it a bit of a different culture? Absolutely. So 2 Squadron was a training culture. 
Uh, so all about you know learning your your you know your trade, um, supporting you know the ADF serials, um, but but a real training environment. So structured, experienced leads, um, and everything was about learning um, everything that you could while you were there. Whereas seventy five squadron that that was about achieving the mission. Yeah. Um, the categories and experience of people um, would determine the positions in the mission that they would fly such that we were, you know, train as you fight kind of mentality. Who would you have available on any given mission? How would you structure the formation to ensure that you achieve the mission and then get out there and have a go? Right, right. Okay. And I guess there is a lot of uh, exercising involved with... Uh working with the army or working with the navy or that sort of thing as well yep absolutely so a real change from the flying you'd be doing at two squadron which would be so two squadron you'd effectively be you know simulating or replicating the enemy of the day and then attacking you know the either the army or the navy or the air force yep. whereas a lot of the missions with number 75 squadron is you'd be working in a joint fashion with those other capabilities Navy and Army, in order to work out how you'd you'd achieve the joint objectives together. Uh, so that was that was really neat and really new. Right. Okay. Um. And were you doing um much sort of at that stage? Was it air shows that you guys were flying to and um a bit of public relations stuff promoting the Air Force? Yeah, there was a bit, although at that time, Kiwi Red was still in existence. Okay. So they were they were doing the bulk of that type of flying. And, that, and I mean, it wasn't long after that period that they actually kind of disbanded it. And then, you know, whoever was available would go and do shows. Yeah. So because I was very new to the Skyhawk at that stage, my early exposure to air shows and those public relations events would be I'd be flying an aeroplane with an experienced person who was going to do a display and I'd fly there in the spare aircraft. I'd do commentary, you know, and just be involved that way. Okay. So in the early days, uh, that was my initial exposure to air shows in the Skyhawk, which clearly progressed towards me being the person doing displays. But in those early days, it was, uh, you know, in a kind of support capacity. Right, right. So who were the personalities on the squadron at the time? Who was the CO and flight commanders, that sort of thing? Yes, I had um, Gav House was my CO uh, at the time. Yep. Um, Ian Gore had uh, just left. And I had a lot of other uh, characters around on the squadron, um, uh, like Dobbo and, um, you know, his, his kind of generation, Nigel Milne. Yep. Uh, they, were, they were the senior guys. And Muzz Nelson, uh, who, who was uh, killed um you know, not long after that, which we can talk about later, but right. uh, they were kind of the the old hats, uh, for want of a better term. Yep. And yep. then uh, a bunch of younger bog rats that were progressing towards being two-ship lead and four-ship lead, um, like uh, JT and Blood. Um, Dog Davis was with me at the time. Um, so, you know, that, that generation and then kind of my generation, uh, which was flu, Easty, Dog, Phrase, uh, and the new, the new kids on the block at that stage. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah. So, 
what what sort of uh, experiences with seventy five squadron at that stage um, stick out in your mind? What what were the most interesting? I'll oh, yeah, I'll tell you what really stands out is dropping high explosive weapons up at the army range in Wairu, supporting the army or doing firepower demos. Yeah. Uh, in particular, employing laser guided weapons that oh, right. that really stands out because if you were to think about the job that we might be employed to do anytime soon, that's probably the type of weapon. Uh, that you'd be using but also you know what was really informative was those exercises in southeast asia particularly kind of the vanguard series uh, of exercises or basama where you'd be operating either in uh, indonesia malaysia or singapore yeah uh they, they were really neat and what we used to do because we were on the road and it was a long way is we would deploy to Australia, join an exercise in Australia for a few weeks, then fly over to Southeast Asia, Singapore and Malaysia primarily, exercise there for about three weeks. On the way home, if there was another activity, we'd join that and then end up back uh, in New Zealand kind of eight weeks later. So, you know, as a young bog rat, it was just unreal. When you think about it, that would have been the perfect time for someone to invade New Zealand, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Although, you know, the Skyhawk's got long legs, can do air-to-air refueling, you know, you're never far from home in real terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you find that um, when you when you got onto the Skyhawk and you start doing air-to-air refueling, was that hard to, to grasp or was that quite easy? No, I, I found it pretty easy um, because I was good at formation and really it's all about formation. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you what, it's one of those, it's one of those things that you do that, you know, if the weather's beautiful and it's smooth, it's really, really easy. Yeah. If the weather's rough and it's night or you're in the cloud and there's a bit of pressure, it can be an absolute <laughs> rock show. Yeah. Um, it really depends on the conditions. Would you try and find an altitude where there's less, uh, buffeting, less wind before you started it or? You, w- you would have thought, wouldn't you? But, yeah. um, a lot of it's constrained, <laughs> a lot of it's constrained by the mission at the time. Okay. And then, and then really if the current conditions meant that actually we weren't going to be able to get the mission done because we can't get everyone through the basket to get fuel yeah. is then we'd go searching for some conditions that were conducive to tanking. Okay. Yep. Yep. Ah, okay. Um, so how long was this period whilst you were at 75? Yeah, it was, it was only three years, 93 to 96, okay. which went, you know, in a heartbeat. Um, and I progressed from, you know, brand new bog rat on the Skyhawk after two squadron, you know, op, you know, trainer wheels kind of coming off, yeah. progressed through pairs leader into fours leader, being a very experienced bog rat, um, on the squadron yeah. and about the time that I would go to CFS and learn to be an instructor. Um, but in 1996, I had the opportunity to put my hand up for the exchange with the Royal Air Force. Um, and there was a small group of us who all put a hand up and I happened to be selected. So in 1990, late 1996, I packed up uh, myself and Gillies, uh, my missus at the time, yeah. and we went over to England for three years find Jaguars. Okay, cool. So tell me about the Jaguar. What was that like? Um, oh, mate, mate, it was <laughs> it was awesome. So <laughs> you start off actually into across to England, into the Royal Air Force, and then you fly the Hawk for a few months doing an orientation phase. Yep. So you just learn, you know, their rules, how they 
fly, you know, how to talk on the radio, you know, get to know the, how the system works before you join the Jaguar operational conversion. So for a couple of months, I was just flying around Wales, having a great time. Is that, then join, uh, is that RAF Valley that you were doing that? Or? Yep, over at RAF Valley. Yep. Um, so that was that was fabulous. So they set up a house over at Coltishall, which is in East Anglia, Norwich, over on the East Coast. Yep. And then I disappeared over to Wales uh, to fly the Hawk for a couple of months. And Gillies, who at, at that time was like, you know, go and set up the house and get ready. And she's like, no, no, I'm coming to Wales. So we actually got a couple of suites in the officer's mess at RAF Valley and, you know, flew the Hawk during the day and went to pubs around Wales at night. It was really, really cool. Um, and that was only for eight weeks. And then I went up to Scotland uh, to RAF Lossy Mouth uh, to do the Jaguar conversion, operational conversion, which only ran for four months. Very similar to the Skyhawk conversion, you know, as a structured conversion course goes. And then straight after that, down to number six squadron, which was the squadron I was assigned to um, on my exchange. Okay. Um, so I arrived um, at number six squadron in early 1997, you know, as a reasonably experienced fighter pilot, but very new to the Jaguar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the role that the Jaguar was playing on six squadron, was that low-level bombing type stuff? Or yeah, so, so ground attack and reconnaissance. Oh, yeah. Um, but it was doing high-level and low-level uh, bombing depending on what's well, it's theater dependent obviously depending on what the threat is yeah um and at that time a lot was going on so there was still you know patrolling in iraq post the conflict there there was a lot of peace let's call it peacemaking in bosnia yeah. um you know kosovo kicked off you know you know there was a lot going on yeah and the thing for the jaguar it, it was quite i mean it was a very mature airplane and so, you know, the risk appetite was now well known. It had a lot of money thrown at it as a result of the Eurofighter project being delayed. So it ended up with, um, you know, ASRAM missiles on top of the wings. It ended up with really good jamming pods, good laser designation pods. It had a helmet mounted monocle. Like there was just a lot of things thrown at it yeah. in a very short time because it was a mature airplane. You could just throw things at it and just bolt them on. And of course, the Royal Air Force was really about getting the mission done, right? So it was about what's available, get me one of those, bolt it on, let's go. Right, right. Um, so we would we were doing a lot of operations and exercises, you know, throughout Europe, across into America. Um, a fabulous time. Um, I, you know, I'm amazed at what we did over the three years that I was there. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So. Um... Compared with the Skyhawk, I mean, it's a much bigger aircraft. It's got um, twin engines, isn't it? Yeah, so twin engine, twin afterburning engines, um, more weapons available. Um, had a laser designator, so you could laser your own bombs uh, into the target. Carried cluster munitions as well, okay. but was still a, a ground attack aircraft. It didn't have an air to air radar. Yeah. Um, so from that regard, it was quite similar in mission uh, to the Skyhawk. But it could carry more, it was quicker, it could go further, um, and it had a lot more support assets around it. And what I mean by that is dedicated air-to-air refueling aircraft, you know, escorting aircraft like the F-3 to get you into the target area, and it would um, integrate a lot more with the, all of those other aeroplanes like the Tornado ground attack version, the Harrier, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And how, did, how would you rate it against the Skyhawk for 
for completing the mission was it a better platform for ground attack or or was the skyhawk more comfortable to do it with or you know yeah it's it really it's really theater dependent um right the thing with the jaguar is it was extremely accurate with delivering weapons like it had been delivering weapons all its life right Mm-hmm. And as upgrades came through, it just got better and better at delivering weapons. So wherever you told the weapon to go, that's exactly where it went. So it was more accurate in that regard uh, compared to the Skyhawk. Um, it it had a really good radar warning receiver, so you knew exactly who was looking at you. Yeah. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, in a self-defense fashion with yeah. ground-based uh, air defense that might have a go at you or even air to air. So it was really good in that regard. But the Skyhawk did have a little radar in it straight out of the F-16, as you probably know, um, had a smaller antenna and not as much computing power as the F-16, but it had a radar nonetheless. So you had good situational awareness in close to you, yeah. whereas the Jaguar did not have that. It relied on, you know, like an AWACS feed right. uh, into your cockpit to, to tell you what was going on around you. So... Yeah, really difficult to choose between the two because it's theater dependent. However, um, if people are shooting at you, there's some comfort in having two engines for a start. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. So there's you know a lot of redundancy in it, and the airplane was battle hardened because it had been used for so many ops over the years that the experience um, amongst the Jaguar operators, like there was nothing they hadn't seen or done right. So, you know, when we got told we're going into Bosnia or wherever, they'd been there and done that. So there was a real comfort being around people who knew exactly how this was going to go down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so did were you actually deployed uh, into hot areas or were you just peacekeeping? What, what were you doing? Yep. So most of my op experience was in Bosnia. Yep. Um, and at that stage, it was effectively peacekeeping or when things bubbled up then it would turn into peacemaking (laughs) Um, so that was where I did most of my operational missions which were closely support in support of the JTACs on the ground or the FAC forward air controllers down on the ground trying to keep factions apart Um, and then when Kosovo kicked off then that was that was really kinetic and I was I was there more you know supporting that particular mission as opposed to out there you know, dropping a lot of hardware onto the ground. Right. Uh, there were still restrictions, clearly, for a New Zealand pilot carrying things like cluster bombs, as an example. Oh, okay. All oh, right. Yep. Huh. Um, interesting. I mean, you might have been the best pilot on the squadron, but you, they wouldn't let you go. <laughs> I was. I was still a very, you know, a pimply twenty-five-year-old at that stage. You know, the experience in the Jaguar um, environment was. Like there were guys there that had been flying down there. Jaggy was longer than I'd been alive. Right. So right. huge amount of experience. Yeah. 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 So um, at that same time that you were there in England, uh, did you get much around the uh, air show circuit? And, and were you actually doing any displays with the Jaguars or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. I got to quite a few air shows. Farnborough being a memorable one. I took a Jaguar to Malta for an air show, went to multiple air shows throughout Europe. Um, yeah, did did a lot awesome. uh, over the three years. And, and because I was an exchange officer, right, if something, you know, was on the schedule, like the Farnborough air show, 
you know, the EXO or the Flockerman and go, hey, Easter, you've been, have you been here before? And I'd be like, no. And they're like, okay, you're coming with us. So <laughs> I got to do a whole bunch, you know, not just air shows, but also exercises in Europe across to, you know, Red Flag over in America or Alaska. You know, I just, I just got to do so much. It was incredible. That's awesome. How did the Jaguar go at, at Red Flag? Was it competitive there? It was because we were using it for the mission it was designed for. So at an activity like Red Flag, you'd be given a mission um, as an overall um, air task group. So multiple fighters that are good at sanitizing airspace, escorting, you know, real air superiority fighters. You'd have ground attack aircraft like us um, that, you know, are absolutely, you know, precise at, you know, surgical attacks. So you'd structure your air package using everybody's strengths. Um, so the Jaguar clearly was used for precision strike, yeah. uh, you know, getting in low and underneath certain air defences if required. Um, so it went really, really well because we were using it for the mission it was designed for. Like if if you jumped in a Jaguar and had to go out and kind of clean up some air superiority fighters like F-15s, you'd get your ass handed to you. Yeah. Um, but if you needed to go downtown, knock someone's door down and give them a headbutt, the Jaguar was perfect for that. Okay. Oh, cool. Um, so, yeah, that was, you know, really, really good. And, of course, those exercises were enormous, up to 100 airplanes in one package. Wow. Um, the the enemy, whether they were air enemy, you know, U.S. frontline fighters replicating the enemy of the day or ground-based systems, you know, that were just like the real thing. So the missions were absolutely fabulous. And, um, you know, that experience I carried into my later years there going to Red Flag and the Hornet as well. Um, but some of the other really unique kind of experiences in the Jaguar were going into Europe during the winter. So I ended up an doing an exercise in Norway, flying the Jaguar off the snow. Okay. You know, something you just never do in New Zealand. Um, oh. And that, that, that was fabulous. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, well, that's a that sounds like a really awesome exchange, um, and a lot of experience gained there that you would never get in New Zealand, as you said. And um, it must have been hard to come home when time time came, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it was. Although we'd been away for three years at that stage, so I was I was ready for a bit of uh, Kiwiana by the time I got back. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, those three years were very informative um, to me as I progressed towards, you know, middle management being like a flight commander or an EXO or designing exercises or getting ready for operations, yeah. the, the three years flying with the Royal Air Force really shaped how I would view getting a mission done and managing risk. Right, right. Very cool. So when you did come back, where did you get posted to next? I came back to CFS to do instructor's course. Oh, yep. At that time, it was on the mighty CT4E model, so a new CT4, but, I mean, it felt and smelt like a CT4 to me. Yep. Um, it was funny because everyone would talk about all this extra power in the new CT4, but, of course, I'd come from fighters, so yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't actually notice. Um, but I kind of nodded and smiled and yeah, yeah, went, yep, that's awesome. Um, but, you know, did instructor's course. I uh, learned a lot there, did low-level aerobatics, formation aerobatics, and I was about to go from there having graduated as an instructor to PTS to then do my first instructional tour. But as that was happening and I graduated out of CFS, I got dragged straight back to the Skyhawk as an instructor over in back in Nara, number okay. two squadron. Oh, yeah. right. Yep, yep, yep. 
Oh, right. So that must have been a bit of a, a, a different role um, instructing in the Skyhawk. Tell me about that. Yeah, quite different. Um, you know, quite a different focus to what I've been doing for the last six or seven years, which was all about, you know, um, me being at the top of my game and making sure I could get the most out of whatever package was allocated to the mission. Yeah. And now about understanding, you know, how your student learns and how you get the best out of them with the resources and the time available. So quite a different focus. But I also really enjoyed it because, A, I loved flying, and, B, I, I could remember acutely what it was like to be where they were because it wasn't that long ago, relatively speaking. Yeah. Um, so that clearly helps with a bit of empathy and understanding um, and, you know, really rewarding as an instructor taking someone from what was then the Mackie and, you know, putting them in something which felt like a bit of, felt like a bit of a war machine to them, which I remember well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so how many courses would you have done there in a, in a year? Um, how many? Two, two courses per year, six months yeah. long each. Um, and I, I got there in the middle of 2000. Yep. Wow. Um, okay. Having come straight out of CFS. Yep. So I only did three courses um, before, you know, we were facing, you know, the the headlights of uh, the Skyhawk um, shutting down. So right. I went over there as the training flight commander, uh, then moved into the ops flight commander or the EXO role. And then, you know, through tragedy, actually ended up as the CO there before we shut down. Right, right. Um, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I can talk. I can talk about that because um, you know, a I've spoken about it a fair bit over the years, um, and B, it's it's quite a long time ago. But um, at that time, the CEO of the squadron was Muzz Nielsen, and we were doing a practice or workup mission for the Avalon Airshow, mm -hmm. um, which was in early two thousand and one. Um, and the task that we were doing was a two-ship. It was the CEO, it was myself, and we were doing the plugged barrel roll, yep. which actually Kiwis were pretty famous for um, because not many people were doing that in, anywhere in the world at that time. Yep. So we were plugged together doing a barrel roll over the base at Nara and got into all sorts of trouble. Um, ended up nose low, too close to the ground, uh, and when we both were pulling out to avoid the ground, the lead didn't make it, hit the ground, exploded. I kind of went through, you know, fireball and trees came out the other side and lived. Wow. Holy moly. Mm. That's... Yeah, not a good day. No. Well, bittersweet, right? Good day for me because I was alive. Yes. Um, but I was inches away from a, a friend uh, who, who didn't make it. Oh, that's tragic. And this is literally, it's only, what, months or weeks before the Skyhawks were coming out of service, wasn't it? Yeah, so it was um, it was around about ten months or so. It was almost a year, actually. So it was okay. it was a fair bit of time, um, which is why I ended up field promoted uh, once the CEO was killed up into the CEO position to get the get the squadron through to you know the shutdown date. That must have been really difficult for you. That position of having to try and build up the morale of the, of the squadron again after that. Yeah, yeah, I had to dig pretty deep during that period there. Um, and you know, in hindsight, it was probably a lot to ask of a what, what, what at that stage was a pretty young uh, kind of dude. So, hadn't turned thirty, you know, 
feel promoted to the CO having, you know, just watched the CO, you know, die. Yeah. Um, pretty tough ask. And then also to be ensuring we continued to deliver capability, but knowing that we were shutting down and disbanding. Probably, uh, you know, it was a lot to ask and, and a low light really um, in my career from a, you know, what had to be done um, during that period. But also I'm very thankful that I was there at the time, A, to be with those that were really passionate about what we were doing. Yeah. You know, I was able to shape and influence some of the career paths of those young aviators, both from, on, you know, ground and pilots, you know, with what they did in the future. So very rewarding but I didn't really realize that until I'd come out the other side and look back. Right, right. I guess also you um, you would have been away in England when the news came out that we weren't getting the F-16s that had been purchased. Um, or were you back in New Zealand or Australia at this stage? Yeah, no, I was, I was actually back by then. Okay. Um, so we already had ground crew and air crew on the way to the States training on the F-16 that we were buying. Yeah. So... You know, to get the news that A, the F-16 wasn't going to be purchased, which was like, what the heck is going yeah. on? Yeah. To shortly be followed by, actually, we're disbanding the entire air combat force. You know, that, that was a real kick in the teeth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, it's never recovered. The, the RNZF's never recovered from that. The, the loss of experience and personnel, is, it's incredible. Oh, it, yeah, yeah, I, I can't fathom the decision. Um, you know, clearly there was a lot of talk about affordability. Um, and I mean, I can't talk too political here, right? But, you know, for what we were doing, um, A, it was value for money, relatively cheap. Yep. We had some, we had skills in the country that took generations to develop yes. um, that you just can't replace now, right? Um, and... Of course, for very little money, we were, you know, producing a phenomenal capability. Now, clearly, the Skyhawk needed to be replaced at some point because, you know, as enemies' capabilities develop, you need to be viable and survivable, right? So clearly, there needed to be a pathway um, to modernization. Yeah. And the F-16, in my mind, was the answer at that time for New Zealand based on our mission and the money that was available. Yeah. Um, so to find out actually that the whole thing was shutting down, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's it is unfathomable, especially when you look into it and you find that deal was so good. Uh, the way it was set up, it was almost like we were getting them for free. You know, it, it was, was an absolute no-brainer, right? From our yeah. cost versus capability. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, no politician could go, oh well, it's costing us too much money. <laughs> yeah, just couldn't. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, it's uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it, uh, that's water under the bridge now. But you're right. You know, if, yeah. if New Zealand was to say, actually, we need an air combat capability, my God, the investment and the time that that would take to build that up, it's that's no mean feat. Yeah, no, it, it, it'll take years. Um, and and I guess the other the other thing that you're you're at now, or you've you've got those last courses coming through. Must have been almost like, what's the point of training these guys? Yeah. So as soon as the news came out, yep. we stopped. We stopped okay. the following course. Yep. And what we did was the students that were on course, we got them to a level where they could contribute to the capability requirements that we had for the final 10 months. Yep. 
And in the in the narrow number two squadron context, that was about supporting the ADF. Yep. So we just got them to a standard where they could contribute, um, stopped all the rest of their training, and then just use them to get us through to the end. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and and then you have to pack up the base and come home and yeah, uh, shut that. That must have been hard. Oh, I'll tell you what was hard was what happened at the time, which was a lot of the technical trades because they were a lot much larger force compared to the pilots. So at that time, I had about eight or nine pilots over there. But yeah. we had a lot of technicians, very skilled, very passionate, yeah. who effectively you know, were going to be issued a don't come Monday kind of letter when we shut down. Right. Um, and that, that was absolutely heartbreaking because as a CO, it was my responsibility to you know, give them that sort of news. Um, so, you know, that, that was devastating. Um, yeah. And at the same time, you know, me trying to work out what the hell I was going to do in the future. Yeah, well, of course, yeah, yeah. I, I understand that the squadron actually had a funeral uh, for the squadron. Is that, do you remember that? Yeah, let's call it a wake, yeah. Um, but we, you know, we had, you know, we had to celebrate what we'd done and achieved. So it was also a celebration, but we, effectively had a farewell over in Nara where the base and the ADF capabilities on the base at the time basically said, thank you. And, you know, see you later. Yeah. And also they can't believe what the hell is happening. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then we had to pack up, come back to New Zealand. And then we joined number 75 squadron and continued with, let's call it a celebration slash commiserations with respect to shutting down the air attack force completely. Right, right, right. And uh, I understand that you put on quite a display for that last day. <laughs> so I was very, I was very fortunate uh, that I happened to be the Skyhawk display pilot. Uh, so yeah, the Skyhawk display pilot at the time. Yeah. Um, so I got to do the, you know, leader formation around New Zealand as far as we could reach in the time that we had available to say goodbye, yep. and then do the final uh, Skyhawk display at the disbandment ceremony par slash parade. So. I mean, like any good display pilot, right? You don't get lost in the moment. You just do the display that you know um, and rinse and repeat. But yeah. I, I didn't leave anything um, under the cover. You know, I, I gave it everything she she had, yeah. in, you know, within the rules and the display that I knew well. That's awesome. It's legendary. I've heard from so many people who were there <laughs> to watch that. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, it actually kind of reminds me of the last display that Gavin Trithui did in the Canberra before they left and the Skyhawks took over. There's that famous photo of him going past the um, control tower at Ahakia below the level yep. of the control tower. And and it's it's a very similar thing, isn't it? That last big hurrah. But unfortunately, yours wasn't a replacement. It was a farewell. So Yeah, yeah. yeah it was. Um, I was glad I was so busy all of the time leading up to that and during that period that I really didn't have time to sit and reflect on actually the fact that we were shutting down. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was kind of thankful they were, I was really, really busy and involved. Yeah. And it wasn't until after that kind of flight where, you know, I had time to kind of go and hide in the corner and my, you know, with a glass of beer and my own tears. Um, yeah. yeah. Sad time. Yeah. And so was it sort of in the lead up to that or or was it after that that you started to look at um crossing the tasman and joining the royal australian air force or it was definitely after in a serious way but clearly the 
the Aussies had reached out going, hey, Eastie, <laughs> come come and join us. <laughs> yeah. um, but I had so much going on and I was very co- focused with the close down yeah. um, or disbandment. And then I was involved a little bit to do with the, the little group of people that were gathered to do the, let's call it the used car salesman kind of job, oh, yeah. <laughs> where, yeah. where we were showcasing the Skyhawk to prospective buyers. Yeah. Um, so I was doing that as well. Yeah. And during that time also... Um, the chief said, hey, Easty, go and fly, you know, all of the things that we've got in the New Zealand Air Force and try and find something, you know, that you can, you know, reinvigorate your passion with. So I actually went and did that. So did a bit of flying in the Sioux, the Iroquois, even flew the King Air, flew the uh, Orion, Herc, 75. You know, I went out there and had a real red hot go at trying to work out what I was going to do in the Air Force because I wanted to stay in the Air Force. Yeah. Um, and over a period of about, three months i gave it a red hot go okay and it was kind of interesting because then i rung at the time the uh, air component commander and you know ring ring g'day sir it's easty <laughs> and his words were let me guess you're going to australia <laughs> so he, he kind of already knew that you know there there wasn't anything in new zealand at that time that could satisfy uh, the urge to be in a fighter cockpit right 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 yeah, and, and was it an easy switch to go from our Air Force to the Australian Air Force? Did they welcome you with open arms? That sort of oh, thing? yeah, absolutely. Because I've been in Nara a lot as well, so I was yeah. flying with the ADF a whole lot, including the RAAF. So I I knew most of them anyway. Yeah. Um, and it was as simple as, and as I say to people, which, you know, is not entirely <laughs> how it worked, but, you know, on a Friday, you know, there I am in New Zealand with a Kiwi flag on my shoulder. And on the Monday, there I am at Williamtown with an Aussie flag on my shoulder flying a hawk. Right. Um, like it, it, it did take a few weeks to kind of transition, but it was very, very quick. Yeah. Um, and the Royal Australian Air Force, they knew they were onto a good thing based on all of the New Zealand skills that were right for the picking as they made the transition as easy as it could be. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just to add a bit of context around the decision-making is I'd also been offered a job with the Royal Air Force because I'd been on the exchange with them, I'd flown the Jaguar, uh, well-regarded over there. So they offered me a job, you know, as soon as I could get there. Um, flying the Jaguar for two years as an XO on the squadron and then converting to the Typhoon. So they they dangled a very big carrot uh, in front of me. Right. But, you know, based on the fact that I knew the Royal Australian Air Force, the Hornet is just a phenomenal uh, beast of a machine. Plus it was close to New Zealand. The lifestyle would have been very similar for the boys growing up because we had kids at that stage that, you know, it was a pretty easy decision to just jump across the ditch and, uh, and join, the, join the Aussies. Okay. And did you go straight on to um, Hornets or, or was there any sort of transition? No, I had to, I had to pay my penance, uh, as <laughs> I put it, uh, which was instruct on the Hawk first. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Do it, do a bit of give back. Um, so I instructed on number 76 squadron for a couple of years and then went across to the Hornet. Okay. Yeah, it would have been a bit of a bitter pill to, you know, some Aussie pilots coming through the system if, you know, a Kiwi would jump the queue. So I, yeah. I get it. Yeah. And and I didn't mind that at all. Yeah, fair enough. And what was the Hawk like to fly an instructor? It was a bit like the Mackie, actually. Um, so glass cockpit, head-up display, you know, designed for training. So I found it very similar. Plus I flew the Hawk over in... The UK for a couple of months, so it was a reasonably familiar aeroplane with me, and the training system was something that I recognised and was familiar, so I found it very easy. Okay, okay, 
uh, and I guess the um, students coming through in Australia were much like students coming through in New Zealand. They all had the same sort of attitude and, oh, and, and training background. Yep. Sort of exactly the same. Just a bit of a twang and a and a and a blue nickname, you know. But everything <laughs> almost almost exactly the same, other than the amount of uh, Kiwi banter and bashing. That was the only difference. Right. Right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, and what, once you got to get past your penance and uh, you're you're going towards the Hornet, uh, I guess there's a conversion course. Yeah, so I actually joined the OpCon as if I was a student and with the students on the course at the same time. Okay, so there were six of us at the time, one of them being me, and I was the only one who was actually a qualified fast jet pilot. Yep. The rest of them were coming out of the training system. So they were kind of looking to me as like the granddad of the course kind of thing um, because I've been there and done that even though I was brand new to the Hornet. Um, so, you know, that was my introduction to the Hornet was at, at a normal pace, which suited me at the time because um, just before I started OpCon, um, I, my fourth kid was born and we had four boys under five. So I tell you what, my household was, you know, crazy. Yeah, um, I so imagine. I didn't. I didn't mind starting an opcon along with students that were going at a pace for students that hadn't done it before. Yeah. Um, but what was funny was I hadn't even got to the halfway point of the course, and the XO and the course director on the Hornet opcon at the time went, "Hey, Eastie, we're wasting our time, mate. You're chopped off the course, and off you go to the front line." <laughs> so I didn't even. <laughs> I didn't even finish the course and got, All right. got sent to the squadron. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, which wow. was kind of neat. Okay. Um, and which squadron did you go to first? I went to number three squadron. Three squadron. Really rich history. Uh, number three squadron, like really old fighter squadrons. Um, a proud history, awesome capability. Um, and, and everyone involved with the squadron, you know, was very mission focused and proud of the squadron. So it was really neat to join such an operationally focused um, squadron and, you know, really capable as well. Not just the people, but also the aeroplane. Yeah, yeah. At that stage, I guess they would have been flying the Hornets for what 10, 10 years, fifteen years. How long? How how old were they then? Um, so when we shut down the Hornet, which was in twenty twenty one, yeah, it had done uh, close to thirty six years of service. Okay. Um. So I, I got to number three squadron in two thousand and five. So kind of do the math in public. It was about halfway through its life when I got yep. there. Yep. yep. Okay. <clears throat> and so though that was still, a, I mean, they, they would have been a leap ahead from the Skyhawk, uh, a whole oh, new gen generation ahead, wouldn't yeah, they? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So it, uh, like it, it's a phenomenal aeroplane. I flew the classics and that's been retired. So I can say it was a phenomenal aeroplane. Yeah. Um, but you'll see, you know, the Super Hornet's still flying around. You know, they still look uh, very similar. Yep. But like an absolute war machine, right? Like twin engine, tons of power, modern avionics, uh, a lot of redundancy through its systems, both computers, um, avionics, and hydraulics, of course, two engines. So just built to go downtown and just, you know, don't take any shit from anyone and get the mission done yeah. and take a hit and get you home again. Yeah. It really, like, I'll, I'll forever have a soft spot for the Hornet. And people say to me, you know, if you had to choose one airplane, uh, what would you choose? And I said, if I had to go to war, I'd take the Hornet. Okay, okay. 
Uh, I mean, yeah, a phenomenal aircraft. Um, lots of countries are still using them now, Canada and places. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's got to be something really awesome to be able to serve with uh, at that time. What was the top aircraft in the in the world, pretty much? Um, yeah, and of course, the Australians um, really invest in their capability, and you can just see that now right like yeah. australia right now in particular the raf is one of the most advanced medium-sized air forces in the world yeah yeah like you would struggle to find any uh, air force of a similar size to have the capabilities that we currently have in service it's just um gobsmacking and that really shows that um a they know what they need um they invest the money where it's required and they were careful. They were careful about uh, what they purchase, and the capabilities uh, in service now are just um, mind blowing. And the Hornet at that time, when I was on it back in two thousand and five, there was money being poured into that to upgrade it with the systems, weapons, and the capabilities you need for it to be viable, potent, and competitive in the environment that it might have been used in at the time. Yep. Yep. Okay. So. Um... How many Hornet squadrons are there? There's at least three squadrons, aren't there? So at the time when I was flying the Hornet, there were four squadrons. Four, okay. Yep. Number three squadron, 77 squadron, and 75 squadron, plus two OCU, which was the operational conversion unit. Right. Yes. Right, okay. Uh, and did you eventually move around to different squadrons in your, in your time on the Hornet? Yeah, so I served on all of the squadrons. Um, okay. Two OCU, three squadron... 77 squadron, all based at Williamtown, yep. and also number 75 squadron based in the Northern Territory up at Tyndall. Okay. Yeah. So I, um, like in a normal Air Force kind of cycle, right, every, call it round figures, three years, you would be posted somewhere. Yeah. Um, so I ended up with, you know, nearly four postings to four different squadrons, and I flew the Hornet on every single posting <laughs> so it was awesome i loved it wow wow yeah and, and you didn't get any sort of instructing roles in between with trainers or it was all just hornet 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 it was all hornet but one of my tours was with two ocu as an instructor on yep. the hornet yeah and in fact the position i got posted to was uh course director for all raf f18 training okay okay yeah. wow that's awesome and uh in that time did you um did you uh deploy overseas anywhere or was there anything yeah that... so lots and lots of exercises overseas yep. southeast asia um up into america like red flag uh, yep. in particular and alaska so all over the place also flew on exercises in places like guam hawaii took the hornet to samoa flew the hornet to japan like all over the place. Wow. Um, I was involved with, you know, operations uh, when we were in the fight against ISIS, mm -hmm. um, you know, back 2015, 2016 kind of um, era. Yep. Um, but like all over the place in the Hornet and, you know, loved every minute of it. And also I was kind of at that level in the squadron where I had a lot of influence over what we were doing and how we were doing it. Like, you know, either flight commander or XO, and then in my later Hornet tour as CO number 77 squadron. Yeah. So, um, you know, I read it like 
they're some of the, the best years of my military career. Awesome. Were there any places out of all those different uh, countries you went to, were there any places that it didn't operate so well as as others with the heat or uh, different conditions, or or was it good everywhere? You're talking about the Hornets specifically? Yeah, the Hornets specifically, oh, yeah. Like, I never took the Hornet into an environment um, where it didn't go well. So okay. Alaska, freezing cold. You know, the heat of the desert over uh, at uh, Las Vegas. And everywhere in between. Um, like there were times where like it was too bloody hot and the aircon didn't work until you kind of got airborne and went fast or yeah. we had it so heavily loaded that it felt like a dog, you know, because it was so <laughs> hot and heavy. Yeah. But it always went, whether it was freezing cold or 40 degree heat and humid, yeah. it always went. It always went and got the job done. Okay. Awesome. Um how many other uh, Kiwis from when you were at the end of um, 75 Squadron there, how many others came across with you onto Hornets? Was there many? No, there wasn't. So um, basically myself and Fraze were really the two that flew Hornets. Oz came over as well, yep. um, but he stayed on the Hawk. Yep. Um, Barnsley came over for a short period. So... And there were a few who went up to um, Amberley to fly the F-111 as well. So there were a few of us scattered around. Yeah. But I'm the only one out of the cohort that came over and stayed in an operational sense at operational squadrons, you know, for a, you know, meaningful career from a length of time perspective. Right, right. Okay. Uh, and during the time that you were on the Hornet, um, at these various units, were you doing any display flying? Right the way through, or, or yeah, like I went a lot, went to lots of air shows, led formation displays, did solo displays as well on the Hornet, and and I mean, would you believe, you know, based on where I'd come from, so I ended up doing the last display in the Skyhawk uh, when we shut down at that ceremony, yeah. and when we shut down the Classic Hornet, I did the final display of the Classic Hornet uh, when we shut down as well. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Oh, you know, I was. I'm still kicking myself as to um, how the planets aligned or that I happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, and I mean, I was actually in a very senior position at that time, chief of staff, um, as a group captain, still flying the Hornet. Yeah. And it was actually number 75 squadron, which was the last classic Hornet operation squadron uh, to shut down. They had a display pilot and they were the squadron that was supposed to do the last air shows and then the last display. Yep. But they got locked down in the Northern Territory due to COVID oh. at that time. And New South Wales, where we were, was opening up. So I happened to be down in New South Wales, had a Hornet down there, was flying the Hornet and ended up doing the final display. So it was never planned to be that way. I just happened to <laughs> right place, right time, right? Wow. Um, oh, so very, awesome. very privileged uh, opportunity. You also did the last Hornet display in New Zealand as well when you brought it to Omaka uh, in 2019. That I was did. just and go, and go figure, right? That a uh, a Hornet squadron would turn up in New Zealand, and lo and behold, it was uh, myself as the CEO yeah. of the squadron who who brought it over. <laughs> yeah, and, and that display was phenomenal. It was you, you kept it so tight and and so low in the circuit there. I mean, you've got the hills just there. Um, it was incredible it was such a great display everyone was talking about it and then Mate, of course, i was just the i was just the monkey on the stick it's the airplane that made me look good <laughs> uh, and it also looked really cool when you went past uh with following the avenger when you're getting your photos taken 
over the over the air show. Do you remember that? The yeah, pretty yeah, pretty special moment. Um, you know, there with uh, Gav taking photos as well. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, seeing his lens poking out the back <laughs> was pretty neat. You know, giving me hand signals up, down, move forward. Oh dear, move back, move back. Um, <laughs> And then, you know, flying over the show, getting some really classic photos like that that just keep popping up because they are so awesome. Yeah. Um, not long after that's, you know, that sad moment down in Christchurch, which is why I had Kia Kaha on my helmet at that yeah. time. Yeah. Um, but just the opportunity to bring such a potent machine back to New Zealand, display it in front of the public. But, but the connection that I had, you know, being a Kiwi and flying Skyhawks, you know, it just... I just kicked myself for the opportunity that yeah. that happened. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And uh, you know, once you finished with the Hornets, um, you moved on to something completely different, didn't you? Yeah. So um, I was getting very senior, um, and it was time to kind of grow up and fly a desk. And I was like, <laughs> oh man, I don't, I don't think I can do that. And I mean, anyone who knows me knows that I probably wouldn't survive flying a desk. Yeah. You know, in a headquarters for too long. So that's why I. Um, you know, set up a plan uh, with Air Force to join uh, historic, um, the historic squadron, number 100 squadron. And, you know, and bless the Royal Australian Air Force. They really know how to manage capability, manage people and get the best out of what's available is I'm a senior, I'm a group captain, quite a senior rank. Um, But now I'm the CEO of number 100 squadron flying warbirds. I'm wearing the rank of wing commander because that's the position of the CO, even though I'm my group captain. And they just make it happen, right, to meet the need, meet the capability requirement, meet the want of the individual and just get on and get the job done. So here I am at number 100 squadron flying things like a Mustang, would you believe, a boyhood dream, (laughs) um, instead of flying a desk in Canberra. Like I'm just like grinning. (laughs) <laughs> and and hiding before anyone realizes that I'm having such a good time. <laughs> <laughs> you um you came along to that job just at the right time too because uh, it can't have been too long after the aircraft were um uh, uh what would you call it um taken over by the air force from from the Tomorrow collection. Yeah, that's right. So um, the RAF Museum had some aeroplanes yeah. and they some of them were airworthy. airworthy. And of course, Tamora Aviation Museum had a lot of aeroplanes um, there under the Dave Lowe, you know, Dave Lowey being, um, you know, an aviation enthusiast with the means to acquire such a phenomenal collection of warbirds. Yeah. And then... Um, he gifted or Tamora gifted those aeroplanes to Air Force and Air Force took over the RAF Museum flying aeroplanes to create what is, you know, just a, a world-leading collection of historic warbirds operated under a contemporary military structure. So number 100 squadron, it looks and feels like a normal squadron, although scope and scale is different. So it has a CO, an XO, an engineering officer, logistics, and on you go. Yeah. So hats off to the RAF for actually taking the leap of faith and taking a leading role in preserving and showcasing historic aviation for the sole purpose of ensuring that we a bring bring to life historic aviation in Australia, showcase precious aeroplanes, but actually what we do is get out there and tell the RAF's 
story about where we've come from, how we've got here, the heroes involved. Like it is, oh, it's such a privilege to be doing what I'm doing. I can't believe it. Um, it's, yeah, it's not lost on me. Uh, you know, the real, the, the honor that's been bestowed on me to showcase aeroplanes that bring to life what would normally be a museum. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, leading a squadron, uh, usually when you have led previous squadrons, it's been, you know, I don't know, 15 of the same aircraft, but this is, the, every single aircraft's a different type. Uh, are there a lot more challenges in keeping a whole lot of different types and uh, bombers and fighters and trainers and all that uh, airborne? Uh, oh, yeah. If you, if you could see me right now, you'd seen the massive grin on my face based on all of the airplanes that we get to fly and the big frown on my face about how complex that is. Yeah. Um, just from, you know, a regulatory framework, old airplanes where you don't have parts on a shelf. Yep. The expertise, right, is getting older and older. So, you know, we need to make sure that those who have been working on the airplanes for generations, we, you know, we get them to mentor the next generation. Um, but I'll tell you what, it's it's no mean feat. Um, you know, keeping a RE8 or a Sopworth pup flying and a Mustang and a Canberra and Spitfires and this and that, like yeah. it is, um, it requires dedicated people and a focused mission. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the collection as it was before, when it was, uh, you know, owned by Dave Lowy and a civilian operation, uh, a lot of the pilots and engineers are still with you, aren't they? The the, the volunteer yep. pilots and that. And have they, have they sort of become um, uh, like territorial air force or how does that work? Yeah. And, and I mean, here, Here's another example of how agile the Royal Australian Air Force is. So we have this opportunity to pull together, you know, this classic collection of aeroplanes, yep. um, focus on flying them and showcasing them. But the expertise, a lot of the expertise is not even in the military um, and have never served in the military. Yep. And so the Air Force creates a special category for those that we need as an air force, you know, that we need in order to produce the capability and, and just draft them into the air force. So we've got pilots that fly air force airplanes, an example being the Spitfire, who have never been in air force ever, but now they're in an air force flying to with air force rank with the bare minimum training they need in order to, you know, speak the air force language, but actually they're in air force because of their specialist knowledge around operating um, historic aircraft. It, you know, really is really just shows how agile and adaptive the, the RAF is. You know, what's the job? How do we get it done? Do it. That's super cool. That really is. I mean, there, there are other historic flights around the world. I mean, you know, New Zealand's got the Heritage Flight and Britain's got the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight and, you know, India's got one of that. But there's none that run like yours, which is, um, yeah, very unique. Oh, it is. I mean, the eyes of the world are looking at this setup um, with envy. They really are. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, so tell me, what, uh, which types have you flown from this collection so far? I know you've been doing it. <laughs> so I, lo I love the way you put so far on it. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I tell you what, I am a kid in the candy store right now. But um, <laughs> at the moment, <laughs> um, I'm flying the Mustang. 
um, the Wirraway, uh, which is the Australian made trainer, a bit like a Harvard from yeah, yeah. a size and build. Yeah. Um, I'm flying the Tiger Moth. Right. Um, I'm also flying the A37 Dragonfly. Okay. Um, flying the CT4 as well because we've got one of those. Uh, flowing the um, Harvard. Also flowing the Ryan ST. Like just so many different airplanes, right? Um, yeah. But still, plenty more to go. That's that's uh, that's pretty cool. I mean. Yeah, where else can you get to do that? And and you're getting paid Air Force wages for it. Oh, yeah, it's not lost on me, dude. There, yeah. there is nowhere else in the world that I could do this. Yeah. And and even if there was outside of Air Force, I would never have the means to be able to do it on my own. So I am like, a re- I'm in a real pr- privileged position. It's not lost on me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, actually, um, something earlier on when you were flying the Hornets, um, you were doing a bit of civilian flying, well, not, you weren't civilian, but you were doing um, Stripe Master rides, weren't you, with the company? Yeah, so, so I still, well, I mean, dude, I, I fly anything with wings on it, right? And in yeah. my spare time, if I'm not at work flying, I'm flying. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, Joy Flights in a Strike Master or an L39 Albatross, which is a Checkers fucking jet. Yeah. Or I do a lot of adventure flights with Matt Hall Racing, like he's got an extra 300 painted up uh, in the Red Bull colours. He's the Red Bull Air Race champion. I do adventure flights uh, with him. Like I just, I just love flying, right? And you know, in my spare time when I'm not at work flying, I'm flying. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I just, I just love it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, and I guess the, those stri- strike masters or the strike master that you were flying joy rides, and um, you would have been quite familiar with it. You probably flew that aircraft. When you're on yep. squad they are so the the strike masters they're not doing it now because those airplanes have been sold overseas but yeah. um there are two strike masters that are that i was flying in australia doing joy flights yeah. and both of them are from were, were from 14 squadron and they're in my logbook from back when i flew them as a kid <laughs> uh, <laughs> awesome. yeah really really neat really they could, neat. they could have been the ones that you saw when you're standing at the fence there yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, full circle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How good. Yeah. Well, um, no, thank you very much, Jason. It's been awesome to hear about your career and and to actually sit down and, and talk to you. And um, I really appreciate the time that you've taken. Yeah, thanks, David. And thanks for the opportunity uh, to talk to the listeners. Hopefully I haven't bored them to death, which, oh no, you know, with stuff that I would talk about for hours and hours, right, which is flying <laughs> airplanes, because I just love it. Um, so... Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Oh no, no worries at all. It's a it's a pleasure, and I, I know that there's a lot of fans out there. You've even even got a um a, a fan page, haven't you, on Facebook? Actually. <laughs> I, I have heard about this now. I don't have Facebook, so all I've seen is a screenshot for someone as they take every opportunity opportunity to hassle me about uh, the Facebook page that you've just mentioned. But oh, bless them! It uh, you know, I like I just don't feel special enough to have my own page, but. Um, yeah bless bless awesome well thanks again jason i really appreciate it thanks that was the wings over new zealand show with dave homewood